Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. Before we jump in, we want to remind you that registration is open for the 2022 ASHT annual meeting. The meeting will be held in Washington, D.C., October 13th through 16th. There is a hybrid option as well if you're unable to join us in person. You can find the final program as well as register on the ASHT website. Steph and I will definitely be back this year roaming around with our microphones to get the inside scoop from attendees and speakers. We hope to see you there. So now on to the episode. We are excited to be joined by Chris Valdez. Chris is an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist who has made extensive contributions to the hand and upper extremity profession. She is also a past president of ASHT. She has a widespread knowledge of treatment for distal radius fractures, specifically looking at proprioceptive input. She defines that for us and gives helpful information on how to assess this in your patients, as well as how to address it to ensure optimal rehabilitation. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Chris. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. We're joined tonight with Chris, and she is going to give us a little bit of a background about herself, what she's currently doing, and then we'll jump right into our episode. So Chris, tell us about yourself. So I have been a hand therapist for a number of years and owned a private practice in Florida for probably close to 30 years. I I know that's aging me, but at this point it is who I am. And COVID, I'm one of those people who decided to uproot my life. And I actually had fortuitously sold my practice right before COVID had happened. So it was time that I could actually make a big life change. So I took a faculty job at Toro University in Las Vegas or Henderson, Nevada, So I'm a Nevada native or resident now, and I am still in clinical practice, kind of varies about with my schedule, but uh, times like one day a week, they actually want us to still stay in clinical practice because it helps to make us relevant with the students. So because my primary practice used to be in Florida, I was lucky enough to have a lot of patients that I saw following distal radius fracture. It was probably the most common diagnosis that I saw because of the fact that it's such a common occurrence for trip and falls and for elderly individuals that have poor bone density. So that was kind of how I got started into looking at some outcomes and doing some research with distal radius fractures. So I know you've done extensive work in that area. And I also know that you kind of jumped into a little bit of like proprioceptive input. What exactly is that? Like explain to our listeners how you identify a loss of proprioceptive input. What is it? And what do we want to look for, especially for those new clinicians that, you know, even non-hand therapists, just general OTs, because everybody gets that diagnosis in the clinic. 
Sure. So proprioception is kind of like the sixth sense. And it's the ability, the body's ability to know where the joint is in any given space or time. And what it allows is smooth and coordinated movements or controlled motions. So the brain tells which muscles to contract And then it, by doing that and contracting the right muscles, it allows the muscles that aren't necessary to create that reaction or the motion to be at rest. So it makes for a much more efficient movement pattern. If someone has a proprioceptive deficit, what we'll see is is that they are using way more joints and muscles than they should be using. Like if you asked a person something that you might see in the clinical setting is say you gave them a marble and a jar lid and you said, okay, the only thing I want you to do is move that marble around clockwise and counter clockwise. And the only thing you can do is move your wrist to accomplish it. What you would see is, is that they would do everything. They would use their elbow. They would use their shoulder. I actually have a video of a patient doing that. And she goes, I'm not just using my wrist, am I? And I'm like, no, you're not. And so what happens is, is that that then is going to create a less efficient use of the involved upper extremity. So that's how you can see it Clinically, I typically usually like to measure it using joint position sense. And the reason why I do that is is because if someone does have a deficit and we can measure and see what the deficit is, then it also gives us a rationale for doing proprioceptive or neuromuscular re-education with our client. And it just, again, helps us to, if we ever have to justify why we did something to an insurance company, we can say, well, they had a 10 degree joint position sense deficit of their wrist. And that's why I did neuromuscular re-education with them. So Christos Karagianopoulos was one of the really was kind of like the groundbreaker in measuring that and doing some early research about joint position sense deficits with this population. And he compared people that had had a wrist fracture six weeks after the fracture, which I thought was kind of interesting. We kind of would expect maybe by six weeks, people had kind of regained that proprioceptive loss. But he actually found that even after six weeks, that women that had a distal radius fracture had a proprioceptive deficit when they measured it with joint position sense. Do you want me to just explain real quick how to do a joint position sense testing? Yeah, that would be great. Sure. So you usually have to, because it involves having the patient's eyes closed. So usually I'll explain it to them first with their eyes open and I'll say, I'm going to pick a position and put your wrist in it. And then I'm going to ask you, you know, this whole thing happens with your eyes closed, but I want you just to see. And then I'm going to move your wrist around kind of in a circle to get out of that position. And then you need to remember where your wrist was and replicate that position. So then I asked them just close their eyes and I put their wrist in like, let's say 20 degrees of wrist flexion. I don't ever want to put them exactly to where their limit is because then they know, oh, that's the only as far as I can go. So I pick a, a degree that I know that they have more available motion after that. Then I move their wrist around manually and then ask them to replicate 
the position, the exact position that I just put them in. And I take measurements of the position I had them in and then the position they put themselves in. And if there is a discrepancy, which there usually is following distal radius fracture, I write down the number of degrees of error that I observed. Chris, does that change, or maybe this might've been in the research, But is there a different scene in the way that a distal radius fracture is primarily addressed through whether they received cast mobilization or plating or how does that play into this proprioception at all? Does that change things? No, actually, I think it's more the fact that the wrist joint was immobilized. So I think that it even actually is relevant for anybody that's had their wrist immobilized for any period of time, even like after a CMC arthroplasty, they probably have wrist proprioceptive deficits as well. So I think it's not really related to the surgery as much as it's related to the fact that they had an injury and all the wrist mechanoreceptors that are kind of telling the brain and giving them the normal input has been altered by pain or swelling, but predominantly that immobilization. And so because of that period of immobilization, that's why somebody has those proprioceptive deficits. But that's a great question. No, much more related to immobilization than whether or not they had surgery. So you also mentioned that they looked even at like six weeks post-injury. At what point are you addressing this? Are you going that at six point six weeks? Are you looking at this at three weeks? Are is it visible early? Is it late? Is there sort of a timeline? Yeah, I I think the six-week part is really interesting just because there are a lot of things that we know in therapy that time just heals in and of itself. But I will typically evaluate it as soon as I can. And the variability with that is, you know, there's some patients where you come in on their first visit and literally they have 10 degrees of wrist motion. So those are not really the candidates for doing joint position sense testing. You know, there probably isn't evidence for this, but I usually would like them to have, you know, probably at least 30 to 40 degrees of wrist motion before I would attempt to do it because I want there to be some motion available to them beyond where I put them. So they have to have enough mobility that when I do the test, I know that they don't know where exactly to position themselves because that's all the available motion that they have. If you get somebody that has a really stiff wrist and they do not have a lot of range of motion, do you ever implement proprioceptive treatment prior to formally assessing it just to get kind of a jump start on getting those wrist muscles and tendons and, you know, to kind of react or respond? Or like I know I started, even if I just do ball presses with wrist and neutral, just to try and get some input into that. Is that something you would do? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So even though I can't actually quantify or measure it, you know, just because we know that it is so prevalent for this population that I will do something early on, like you said, perhaps having them roll a ball back and forth on the table with a little bit of pressure, like a closed chain activity. I will do that. I will even have them sometimes I'll even do, I, I, I've been known to use like the iPhone 
apps because your iPhone has an accelerometer in it. And so even if they can't get in full supination, I'll have them hold on to the device however they can and play like one of the labyrinth games or something just to get them starting to think and use about where their wrist is. And so even if they're doing a lot of substitution, which they might be doing initially, I'll tell them, well, as we get better, you know, I want you to have your forearm in complete supination and try this and try not to use all the associated muscles. But yes, I absolutely do it early on. Okay. Say if they didn't have supination, like, could you use like a larger, like iPad to get now you're, you would be doing it bilaterally, but completing that labyrinth with like a larger iPad to try and get some of that motion as well. Or do you really want them just using one hand? No, I think you could use the combination because that's so functional. Again, I don't think, you know, that we don't have a lot of evidence, but it just kind of makes clinical sense, right? And then there's always the true balance toy where they have all the discs that they try to stack up or also even just the wrist exerciser that has the the washer that they need to get from one position to the other. So those are all really useful tools to work on proprioception and gives them a lot of different options of something that might be comfortable for them. And I think it actually encourages them to start thinking about moving their wrist because I think for a lot of times after distal radius fracture, people are afraid it's going to fall apart. You know, they'll say, oh, you know, I had a fracture, don't you? And like, like, yeah, we know you do, but you're either out of your cast or you are early or you've been immobilized by that plate and we're not putting any pressure on it. So this is a fine activity for you to do. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you mentioned that, you know, I had somebody earlier today that they're like six to eight weeks out of their fracture, but she's still holding on to that wrist brace. And I'm like, you need to lose the wrist brace. Like, well, what if it's like I fall and fracture it again? I said, well, you could fall and fracture the other arm. So like, you know, I'm like, you really have to try and get out of that brace because like you said, they get so fearful to move it. And then it just kind of progressively makes that worse, you know, but it was funny. You just brought that up, but (laughs) yeah, well, now that you brought that up, I have a really funny story. So I had a lady one time and she really didn't need her wrist brace anymore. And every time she came in, I'm like, what is going on with the wrist brace? I told you, you don't need it anymore. She goes, oh, well, you don't understand. Every time I go to the grocery store, everybody talks to me and asks me how I'm doing. And they give me all this help that I never usually get. And so, you know, it's, and she says, and I live alone. So I'm really enjoying all the attention that I'm getting over the wrist brace. So we made like, okay, so let's make a deal. When you go to the grocery store, you can wear your wrist brace. But other than that, you cannot wear your wrist brace. (laughs) But yeah, it's funny because you, I mean, I really see the difference between her and some, you know, another patient that I have same exact weeks really wasn't afraid to use her wrist. And, you know, there's a big difference between the two of them, even though they're at the same length of time post-recovery. So it's just interesting. And, you know, trying to give her some proprioceptive activities 
it's like I'm asking her to do like push-ups with wrist and full extension. She's like, what do you mean you want me to do that? I'm like, just throw the ball in the air and catch it. Like, you know, so like they, they kind of get afraid. Well, what if I miss it? I'm like, well, the ball will fall on the ground. It will be okay. You know, right. but like it's, you almost have to retrain them, you know, to try and use that involved extremity again. Yeah, it's like even when they say, you know, you know that I had a break, don't you? Like they like they they think break is worse than fracture. And they're like, you know, I had a break, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny, right? Chris, do you find that patients seem to catch on to these exercises and sort of figure it out and even take those exercises down a notch to really get this motor control and and motor planning. Yeah, I think you're right. And again, that's one of the skilled services that we provide as therapists is to provide that verbal cueing or to break down the task further. Because especially for something where you give them a job that they have to do, they're just going to do it the easiest way possible. So they're going to just naturally, without even meaning to, use a lot of substitution patterns. So if we can encourage them and say, no, you have to keep your elbow stabilized. No, you can only use your wrist. No, you realize you're doing this. So, you know, I find that I am giving a lot of times when they're doing it, I am not simply just observing what they're doing. I'm providing probably verbal cueing almost constantly when they're doing it to try to make sure that they're doing it correctly. And if I give them a home exercise to do at home, I will oftentimes maybe even, I have done this before too, where I'll actually take it, use a, a, their phone, the video on their phone to has, have them doing it correctly so that they can watch that at home and make sure that they're replicating it correctly. Because, you know, we tell patients all the time to do something. They seem like they have it in the clinic. And then the next time when you ask them, hey, can you show me your exercise program? They'll show you something like completely completely different because it seemed really sensible when when you were telling them how to do it. But then by the time they drove home, they completely forgot. Are there any extrinsic or exterior, like utilizing taping or utilizing something that's not your hands? And maybe sometimes it is your hands, but is there anything external that you use to provide feedback to these patients to work on this proprioceptive control? Sure. There is definitely some evidence that elastic tape that's applied will provide some proprioceptive feedback to the joint as well. So, you know, just anything that gives some, the skin receptors also are providing some feedback all the time. So that can be really effective in addition to actually doing the exercises that that gives them some proprioceptive feedback and, you know, deep pressure, massage, anything like that is is helpful as well. Well, now that you mentioned that, does the sensory input as well, will that assist? Like I know a lot of times we might use sensory bins or that type of treatment just for a loss of sensation or decreased sensation, but can that help stimulate that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Any kind of sensory input will definitely 
activate the mechanico-receptors and provide them some feedback. And definitely, I think that people have some diminished ability to take the information that they're getting and organize it correctly. So, the more experiences that we give them, I think the more that helps to normalize. This is a risk in some cases that has been, if they were cast immobilized, immobilized for six weeks. So, I say they were kind of in sensory deprivation for those six weeks when they were bundled up in their restrictive cast. And even if they had volar plating, they're still probably wearing an orthotic device that comes on and off. And so, they're also in a, in a bit of sensory deprivation. So, I think all of those things are useful. Chris, have you ever had a patient that just could not get this and could not figure this out or just really struggled with this? And what did that look like as they're returning to their activities and their participation or just their life activities that they're having to perform? What, how does that translate into their everyday life? So I think probably if I think back, one of the ones that I had patient that I had that had a lot of trouble was someone who also had a very traumatic distal radius fracture that involved, he had carpal tunnel as well, which resulted into the fact that he needed to have a carpal tunnel release. So he had some median nerve compression that was released. And so because of that, you know, in the sensory loss provided by the median nerve injury, he had a lot harder time learning the exercises and doing things and had, again, because of the deficits that he had, just a a real difficulty knowing how to position his wrist. So, the good news is, is that they substitute and they do a lot of things either with their fingers, if they can, as long as they don't have stiff fingers, or with their elbow or et cetera, but it definitely impacted his recovery. So, if you ever have a patient that has a, a also, which is not uncommon at all, a median nerve injury, they probably are going to have a harder time learning and performing the proprioceptive exercises correctly. So now I know you had mentioned it really doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but the type of fixation, maybe whether it was post like surgical or just casting, but I've had a couple people and I don't know if it's just where I am at, but I've had maybe three or four people that have had dorsal spanning plates. So there's a plate that immobilizes, there's no wrist flexion and extension at all. And it's usually in for a long time, like eight weeks or so. And they get to the point actually that that plate has to be removed, whether I've had plates break in the past. So like, would you think because of the length of time that they're immobilized, I know when they would come back, they were, I don't want to say a mess, but they were like they didn't even really know what to do with their hand. Like, and that has to do with the length of immobilization, correct? Because they're just not getting that input. 
Yeah, I saw somebody just a couple weeks ago that he was a workman's comp case. And originally his comp insurance company didn't want to authorize the fact that he needed surgery for dysoradius fracture. So he was immobilized. Then they had to, you know, refracture the fracture and then and then immobilize him again. So, you know, when I was working with him, just like you say, he really was A, very stiff and B, had a lot of trouble with everything. And I Again, I think it has to do that every day that they're immobilized, that they're not sending the normal messages to the brain regarding where their hand is in space. And also because of pain and because of swelling and everything else, there's a lot of different messages that are going up to the brain. And then they're kind of the term is actually smudging the sensory motor cortex. And because of that, they just have a really hard time executing motion because of that. But the good news is, is that that can be reversed, but it's certainly going to take longer because there's a direct relationship with the fact that they've been immobilized for a long time. And because of that, they're really going to have to, there's a lot of cortical reorganization organization that has to take place. Do you find that the end of their treatment or their their stay in therapy that they have made significant improvement in that joint position sense that we had discussed earlier that you're assessing, you know, from initial to end? Have you found Yeah, absolutely. I would have to say that, you know, just in general, I would probably say that all of the patients that I've done proprioceptive exercises and worked with it, I can't think of anyone over time that really hasn't resolved that deficit through therapy. So yeah, it can be a longer road for some, but I think, you know, it's interesting that they'll get better. It's funny though, because I've been a therapist for a number of years and and this is more new. And so many, for many years, I never did anything like that with patients. And so I think, you know, gosh, I wonder how, if we never worked on that, how they eventually got that back. I don't know if there's like a standardized, but you said when you're measuring this and you're, you're assessing that range and the difference, is there a range that's considered significant to say, yes, you've made a significant improvement and we can put kind of the stamp on that. Yeah. So I think actually one of Christos's other studies actually quantified, you know, like what that measurement is. And and I will say that I think it's that the deficit is around, you know, 12 degrees or so is what is kind of standard. But, and then if we kind of think about almost any outcome measure, kind of the rule of thumb is if it hasn't been determined, what is that minimally clinically important difference? A lot of times it's somewhere between 10 to 20%. So if, you know, they had a deficit initially of 10 degrees and now they're at eight degrees, you know, you could probably say that they have already made significant clinical improvements, which will show up and that seeing a little bit more coordinated effort on their part. 
But clearly, this is still an area where we need further research to kind of quantify, you know, what exactly, how do we know that they've made gains? But I think they definitely, one of the other things he did is related it to limited DASH scores. So we know that lack of proprioception also has a significant lack in functional and everything we do is related to function and the restoration of function. So if they have a deficit, we know they're going to have a functional deficit as well. So I know as we talked a little bit about some interventions that we could use initially, the ball press, let's see, the the labyrinths, is there a progression of treatment, like to make it more challenging and more difficult? How do we do that as clinicians? Sure. So I think the minute you add like a more weight or resistance to it. So some of the things that I'll do is I, as someone is progressing is that I make might have them hold a TheraBand flex bar and wobble it. And that provides some resistance. Another thing that I'll do is kind of like you were saying, tossing the ball. But a lot of times what I'll actually have them do is toss like a weighted ball and have that hand catch it or even use the like a plyometric exercise with the trampoline and have them catching the ball too. So I think the minute that we add any kind of weight into it, it then becomes a more and that's an open chained activity as well. So we're going to be challenging them a bit more. Mm-hmm. I know one activity that I used was just getting one of those weighted balls, the small I don't know what brand they are, but the weighted balls. And I have a piece of PVC pipe in my clinic, two inches in diameter, and it's probably about a foot and a half long. And just have them hold that PVC pipe in the middle to balance that ball on the top. Like I'll start out at the real lightweights and then gradually increase the weights. And, you know, it's amazing how challenging that can be. That first time that they hold that, you know, I had, you know, one lady, I'm like, geez, this isn't that it's like the one pound ball. And it, she's like all over the place trying to keep it balanced there. But it it's interesting to see just how difficult something I don't want to say it's easy, but like for us, we don't have anything wrong. And that's pretty easy to balance that ball, but it can be very challenging for them. Yeah, the interesting you say that. It's like a lot of times they're like, I need to do it with the other hand because I don't think anyone can do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's funny, like, because they're like, you do want me to do what? And I'm like, here, try it with the other hand, see if you can. And like, oh, and then they're yeah, like, it is. oh, yeah. <laughs> It can be done. You as a therapist need to practice it sometimes too, so that you can demonstrate it and not <laughs> True. not show your deficits either. Of course, I always cheat and use my dominant hand because I'm always right. much better with my dominant hand. But yeah, it was just interesting to try and come up with different ideas as far as just giving our listeners too, you know, some different treatment interventions. It's always nice talking to other therapists. And especially with interventions for this type of treatment, because there's so many different things I picked up, you know, just from listening to other therapists and different courses and things. So it's good to go home and take that back into your clinic and be able to add some new toys. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I love the labyrinth. I always have to pull back in the cobwebs of my brain as a PT, think about even ankle rehab and translate that over into 
like weight bearing at the wrist, pulling out a BAP sport, or even just watching some of my PT colleagues, what they're doing for ankle rehab. Because when you were saying how you substitute, again, I'm pulling way back 15 something years, but the, the different substitutions, your knee substitutes if you don't have the ankle support and then the hip as well. And so it totally translates over to the wrist too. And so utilizing some of those exercises that the PTs are using for ankle rehab, I do the same thing. Just put their hand flat on a BAPS board, or I remember there's, and I work in a pediatric clinic, but they have like a labyrinth, but has a ball in it and you stand on it, but you can use that as well, but in a weight bearing position for the upper extremity. Yeah, pediatric therapists were way more knowledgeable about proprioceptive and sensory deficits than hand therapists. And and so I myself have looked at some of the pediatric literature to figure out potential interventions that could be used because of the fact that, you know, this is something that they've been working on a long time. And, and for us, we kind of were late to the game. And you're right, PT as well, you know, elbows, shoulders. And, and yet it's interesting because I think some of the research is actually actually saying the more distal you go, the more the deficit is apparent. So, you know, this is something that we really, we were late to the game and understanding the proprioceptive deficits affect the wrist as well as even the finger joints. So I always think of 20 years ago or longer, the PTs doing the alphabet with the ankle. So is that similar? Like back then I didn't even think of that. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess that is working the same thing. (laughs) You PTs are just way ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to do the alphabet with the hand now. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That'd be a good early one. Yeah. And you know, these treatment interventions, some of them I really, really like because before when I kind of was introduced to this, like, you know, you have those early wrist fractures when they can't do resistive yet, but you still want to get some isometric stuff going and you can only do so much manual isometrics, but some of these exercises are excellent. You know, it gives them activities to work on. It gives them things to work on at home, you know, that they can just crip, you know, grab, they don't need any technical tools at home to be able to do some of these things. So do you implement a home program with them as well, as far as what they can do at home and, and, you know, in the case that maybe somebody may have limited insurance visits, like, how do you handle that if, you know, they need to do those things at home? Sure. So that is kind of probably why I started using some of the games on the iPhones for that very reason is because if you can gamify it, they're probably going to be more inclined to play. In fact, I've had some patients say, well, I would have done it more, but my husband and I are in a competition to see who can get the highest score or who can get it done (laughs) the fastest. So that actually makes me happy to hear because I know that they're actually kind of 
it's almost in that way occupation based because we're having them doing something that they're actually enjoying and it's almost even though we're getting work out of them it's some somewhat of even of a leisure activity that they're actually enjoying so i definitely do that just because the other like like if i tell somebody you know go home and put a marble in in a jar lid and rotate it 10 times one way and 10 times the other way i'm probably not they're probably not going to be that compliant with it but if i can prescribe them something that's actually fun like maybe you know a wee game or the handheld device that they do i find that i get better compliance yeah i, I would agree that's probably with anything <laughs> yeah, you know they'd absolutely. rather do something functional than going home and let's just go through these exercises or roll a marble around in a lid or you know if they can gain something out of it I don't want to say emotionally, but leisurely, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that they're doing functionally. But to your point earlier, there have been a time when I've had a patient come in and they're like, you know, my wrist was really sore after the last thing that we did. So, you know, I almost about not coming in today. And that that might be a day where that day I do only pro, a lot of proprioceptive things. I'm like, okay, so we're just going to you know work on proprioception today. So you're right. It opens up a whole nother avenue that we really didn't have before when they are maybe in a lot of pain or maybe something's going on with them that, okay, well, today's going to be a proprioception day. You had mentioned a couple articles. Would you mind giving us some of those references that we can include in the show notes so that people can kind of read a little bit further on this if they want to get a little bit more involved in this type of treatment intervention? Sure, I will be happy to do that. I, I will say that both of Christos Karagianopoulos' articles are in the Journal of Hand Therapy. So luckily, as a member of ASHT, we have access to the that journal. But you can see his original work where he was actually measuring that and then where he was coming up and trying to quantify that. So that was part of actually his doctoral thesis work. So really nice. It was a huge contribution. And actually, I think that when he first gave that, I was actually the research division director for ASHT, and I believe he won best paper for that work. So yeah, it's definitely seminal work in, in our field. Great. I think that's all we have for this evening. What do you think, Kara? Yeah, this has been great. Yeah. So we'll include those those references in the show notes so that anybody can grab those and, and kind of look those up. But thank you so much for joining us this evening, Chris. We really appreciate it. And thanks for all your contributions to research for hand therapy as well. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and it's exciting to see how our profession continues to move forward and, and be evidence-based. So yeah, my, I'm happy to have been a small part of that. I think you're a large part. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> For somebody that didn't like to do research papers, <laughs> I think I remember you saying that in the first class I had with you. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I remember when I had first gone to get my OTD degree and Gretchen Bachman at the time, she says, you know, I'm really interested in doing research. And I'm like, you what? <laughs> and then you do one and it just kind of becomes uh, addictive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I kind of chuckled at that. I was like, you didn't want to do any research articles at all? <laughs> but 
I'm glad you did. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're welcome. And thanks again. Yes. Well, good talking to both of you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.